Hello, you're tuned to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Thanks so much for joining us. Here's a thought. How do we create a culture in our church where it's okay to be single? Some women have been told that your highest calling is to be a wife and a mother. And she said this, but I say unto you, <laughs> your highest calling is to know Christ and follow Him. That's your highest calling. Respect. Where does that sit on the list of important values in our homes and communities? It's one of those values that doesn't come naturally to us, but has to be learned, which implies that someone has to teach it. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in the same way that a father might write to a son, to instruct him on those things that would impact the way he interacted with people. There are some values that are timeless, so we have much to gain from the Apostle Paul's teaching. Let's join Dr. Corbett now as he continues in his series, Dear Timothy, exploring respect, care and honour. If you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at the first 21 or so verses. We may sneak into the next verse. We won't quite make it to the end of the chapter. I'm going to pray and ask God to speak to us tonight. So Father, I pray that you would help us to hear your voice in your word. I pray, oh God, that our hearts would swell with excitement at what we look at in your word and help us to know you better and help us as a church to be healthier and stronger as a result. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Dear Timothy, a father's final words to his son. And as I've mentioned, one of my hopes in looking at this is that we begin to see the Apostle Paul, someone who wrote around about 70% of the New Testament, so he's an important character in New Testament and Christianity, of course, that we begin to see that he was actually a warm-hearted, friendly guy. Now, I'm saying that because there are those who have the idea and the opinion that he was a harsh man and someone who really didn't like women. And uh, I want to show you, particularly as we look at this chapter, that, he, that, he, that was not Paul at all. In fact, what we've been looking at in 1 Timothy and we'll continue to look at in 2 Timothy are indications that Paul was a really warm-hearted man, a warm-hearted shepherd. In fact, I'm going to make the case that he was also modelling what all church leaders should be. One of the things that it's, it's very easy to be completely task-driven when you're a leader. Some of you may be task-driven already. But in a church, we can't afford to be just task-driven. We have to be mindful of people. Is there anyone who appreciates having a list of things to do and there are other people that pay no regard to that list and they interrupt you all the time? I think many people would find interruptions to be a really annoying thing. And one of the things, as we study the life of Christ, and as I wrote not that long ago in a pastor's weekly pastor's desk, is just how often the ministry of Christ was demonstrated to people who interrupted him. You know, think of Zacchaeus in the tree. We think of others who came up and tugged at his robe. We think of people who stopped him when it appeared he was on his way somewhere. And yet those moments became powerful ministry moments. I think there's a lesson in that for us as leaders. 
that oftentimes what looks to us to be an interruption and a hindrance is often God's appointment for us in that time. So bear that in mind as we look at some of these things as well. And this is, well, this is part seven of our series, and I've entitled it Respect, Care and Honour. Three key words that need to be, I think, prevalent in a church. When we look at that first word, respect, I wonder if we live in a respect culture. I wonder if you were raised to respect those in authority. I, I went to school um, with, with an attitude that you listened to your teachers and you did what they said. And so when I was at school and I saw others who didn't have that attitude, I was shocked. And when I was raised, I was raised to respect police and that you did whatever the policeman told you to do. And that policeman had a, had a really important job and you respect, respected him. So when I, whenever I've watched things like random breath test and you see the way some people talk to the policeman who's pulled them up, I'm shocked. That young boy who was raised to respect police looks at this and I'm shocked. I was also raised that you respect your elders. Have you ever been told that if an, an older person comes in and there's no seat, you should get up and give them your seat as a matter of respect? Did you know there's a Bible verse that says that? In fact, the Bible actually says if an older person walks into the room, you should stand as a, a matter of respect for that older person. I, I wonder what that looks like today. I wonder what it looks like. But we're going to see in this passage that it has something to say about that issue and it's respect, care and honour. So we're going to have a look at those three words in this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm going to make the case as we look at this that the gospel, as we have seen throughout Paul's epistle so far, changes the way that people of different ages interact. Take a look around this room now. There are people of different ages. And in our morning service, the age range is even more diverse, isn't it? We have newborn babies nearly. We, we've got a whole bunch of newborns that are going to be born in June and July. That'll be exciting. And the fact that we have babies crying in our church service, I don't want anyone to get upset at that. I, in fact, I want you to just say a prayer of thanks to God, because I think it's wonderful. The fact that we have uh, people in their 90s interacting with us on a Sunday is just wonderful. It's really good. So the gospel changes the way that people of different ages interact with each other. But it also does something else. When we look at this opening verse of chapter 5, which says this, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father younger men as brothers. We see that Paul is writing this to charge Timothy with how he is to train the elders, which were the householders of the various churches. As I pondered this, and we'll, we'll have a look at the, the next verse as well, when we consider this, treat older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity, Honour widows who are truly widows. So it, it gives us a way of interacting with people because of the gospel. A household 
as you may recall, and as we have seen in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, comprised of a mother and a father with their children, presumably with in-laws and their parents as well. So he would have had multiple generations, but it also comprised of slaves. I wonder if Paul had in mind that it's not just the free people who were the older people involved in this injunction. I wonder if Paul had in mind, you're to treat women, older women, who might be slaves as if they were your mother. Older men who might be slaves, they don't have your status, but treat them as fathers. I wonder what would happen in a church if the young men of the church treated all the young women of the church as sisters. I wonder what kind of transformation that would have in a church. What we're going to see Paul talking about here, because we see in his epistle to the Ephesians that there were strong family networks within the household church. But we're also going to see in this chapter something he didn't address in his epistle to the Ephesians, was that not everyone had a family network of support. Not everyone had that. And not everyone had that because in the church at Ephesus, based on what we're reading here, there were widows, young widows and old widows. So we read in, in verse 4, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. Verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. That's a big statement by Paul, but he's saying what appears to be that there are some widows who just realise, here's my opportunity just to focus more on God and serve him in a way that I couldn't before, now I can. But there are some, and we'll see these are younger widows, who are living self-indulgent lives. These were the ones, it appears, and Dr Gordon Fee makes this point in, when he discusses this, that they were listening to the false teachers they were buying into the false teaching. They were paying these false teachers, giving them money. They were being completely bamboozled by these false teachers. But here Paul says something about how the church is to care for widows who have no family network. The average age in the first century for a Roman citizen, a Roman living in the Greco-Roman world, for a man was somewhere around 40 to 50 years of age. That's the average. And you can understand that easily because there were so many military battles and things like that. The average age for women would have been just a little bit more, maybe 50, maybe 60 or so. And how was the local church to show support for those widows who no longer had a husband, children or grandchildren to support them in any way. How is the church to do that? 
Paul writes to Timothy and says, command these things. And by doing it, they will be without reproach. And he's obviously talking about what older widows to do and what the younger widows to do. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Some translations have the word infidel, an unbeliever. So here Paul is saying, but if there's a widow who does have children or grandchildren who can look after her, they should. But what if they don't? What role does the church play in looking after people who have no means of support? Lex, that was great to hear what Rotary did for that widow. Very timely, what I'm sharing tonight, what we're looking at tonight. It's, it's heartbreaking to hear that there are some people who don't have firewood to keep them warm or the, the means by which they can bury their late husband. That's, that's really sad. So well done to Rotary for, for doing something about that. Here Paul says, in a way that seems that he's already been doing when he talks to elders, this is what an elder should do. And now he's going to say, this is what a godly widow should do. These are the qualities of a godly older widow. How do we know older? Because he mentions they must be over 60 years of age. And there's a reason for that. And we'll come to that in a moment. Verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled. Enrolled in the sense of these are the people you are to financially support and care for in a practical way. You have to appreciate in this part of the world, at this time, there was no social welfare. The government didn't give you an unemployment benefit. The government didn't give you a weekly pension. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. This is what an older widow can do. And it's Paul is saying, in this way, she's actually a ministry of the church. She's actually doing something that you would hope the church could do. Minister to children, Show hospitality, invite people over, have people look after people, give them a bed to sleep in perhaps, if she had the means to do that, provide a meal for them, wash the feet of the saints. What's the application of that today? Washing the feet, you'd appreciate people were travelling in sandals, on roads where animals travelled, walking through manure getting to the end of their day with feet that smelt like what? Not pleasant is the word. And this was a very practical need. So in other words, the application of that, if we're reading this, we could think, well, what, what does it mean to minister to someone's most pressing need? It could be, as I've seen already tonight, someone goes around for those people who are tea deficient and has made them a cup of tea. 
It could be a need. It could be a need to be a listening ear. It could be a need to show honour for someone who's having a birthday. Before uh, we came here tonight, Kim went around to someone's house and gave them a birthday present just to honour their birthday, to celebrate their birthday. It says that she's cared for the afflicted and devoted herself to every good work. Imagine the reputation we would have as a church if we had all the older ladies in our church who had the time and the availability to do that, did that within the community. It would, I think it would lift people's perception of what, it, of what it means to be a Christian. But what about young widows? What does that look like? You know we have some young widows in our church. What does it look like for them? What does our church look like for them? Paul actually has something to say about this. In verses 11 and 12, he says, But refuse to enrol younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. It seems like Paul is not, not predicting something, but describing what's actually happening. And, and you'll see that in, as, as we read in the passage, continue to read in the passage. And what, what he's saying here, it seems that these younger widows have been so keen to be married and so keen because maybe there's a scenario which I don't think is too difficult to imagine that the one that they married was much older than them. These householders, people of wealth, married a younger, younger wife and the older householder has died and now here she is. She's got a lot of wealth at her disposal because her husband has died and yet there's one thing she lacks. She wants to be loved. She wants that companionship. Is there anything wrong with that? But it, it seemed like they were looking for love in all the wrong places and they, Paul describes it here, they actually looked beyond the household of God, the community of believers, for the one with whom they could marry. And they abandoned their former faith as a result. Pretty tragic. This is one of the, 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 we can, the implications here is that if you're a young person, if you're a young lady, you should pray for your future husband to be a godly man of God, someone who loves Christ. And as parents of young daughters, we should pray that our daughters marry godly young men of God. Well, godly men of God, at least. And we do. At our dinner table, much to Ruby's annoyance, when I take just a little bit extra time to pray for needs and to pray for each of my children and pray for her future husband, that he will be someone who loves God and is a man of God and will lead her closer to Christ as a result of their relationship. The Bible actually says you should not be unequally yoked. That is, you should not marry someone who is not a believer. Verse 13, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So these young women, these young widows, 
have time and money on their hands. And what are they doing? So Paul says in verse 14, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their household. So this tells us they were the widows of householders and give the adversary no occasion for slander. I wonder what the application and the implication of that statement by Paul is for single people. Don't worry about widowhood. Don't worry about whether someone has been married and now they're not a divorcee. Just people who are single. Here's a thought. How do we create a culture in our church where it's okay to be single? Did you know, and I heard this thought come from uh, a woman who said this recently at a conference. She said, some women have been told that your highest calling is to be a wife and a mother. And she said this, but I say unto you, <laughs> your highest calling is to know Christ and follow him. That's your highest calling. Your highest calling is to know Christ and follow him. And the reason she said that, and she went on to explain it, because if you say to a woman, your highest calling is to be a wife and a mother, the reality is God does not call every woman to be a wife and a mother. That's the reality. And as she said that, and I was listening to this podcast, I reflected on the fact, you know what? I reckon she's right. I think we can look down through history and see that God does not call every woman to be married and become a wife and a mother. And there are instances where the, the very description that Paul has given of women who have served as a as a, a representative of the church out of the community, caring for the afflicted, tending to the needs of people who are hurting, that those women have been invaluable in their service to the kingdom of God. Not every person is called to be married. Now here's the challenge we've got as a church. How do we respond to them? Because for a single person, sometimes the message isn't even subtle. The message sometimes is, what? You're not married yet? You should, and they'll give some kind of supposedly advice on how that could happen. And I've heard some really cruel things suggested. I don't know if you've ever heard this, or when you were single you heard this, or if you are single and you've heard this. But if you want to get married write out the, your list of the perfect husband or the perfect wife and give that to God. Um, if you want a recipe for heartache and disappointment, probably do that indeed. But if you want to follow Christ and serve him and do a Matthew 6.33 with your life, then don't do it. Keep your eyes on Jesus and serve him. When I was a teenager, I'll tell you honestly, I never thought I'd be married. I wanted to serve Christ with all my heart. And I actually thought that meant I couldn't be married. When I was 19, I believed it. I went to my youth leader. And, and at the time, when I was in the church I was in, they would only ordain uh, men, and they would only ordain men who were married. And I went to my youth leader and, and said, I feel the call of God on my life, but I don't think I'm going to get married. That was how serious I thought it was going to be for me. And in that time, all I tried to do was serve Christ. 
just serve Christ. And then that chapter ended, and I didn't even know it ended. And the next chapter is entitled Kim. And my life changed. And it continues to change, and thank God for it. But I tried simply to keep my eyes on Christ. Paul says that when you make, it seems, when you make marriage or a relationship your goal, your highest priority in life, it is possible that you take your eyes off Christ and stray after Satan. He says in verses 15 and 16, Some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And so now he's, he's reverting back to the older widows who have no family of network, or if they do have a family network, that family network really should reach out and care. But if it's a younger widow, his advice is don't stray after Satan. Don't make marriage. Don't make motherhood your goal. Make Christ your goal. Seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6.33. And the next verse says, because when you seek first the kingdom of God, he will take care of every need you have. Sometimes we put the cart before the horse, don't we? Seek God and his will first. So this is what I, I want us to begin to think about. What does it look like to be a community of believers where we can affirm someone who's single? How can we do that? Maybe being okay with it is the first step. You're single and that's okay. And I know, and we've all met singles, who didn't want to be single. And I wonder if we have a pastoral heart toward them where we can genuinely and genuinely say, right now, your highest priority is not marriage. Your highest priority is not to get into a relationship. Your highest priority is to seek God first. Yield yourself to him and bloom where you're planted right now, developing a community of affirmation for singles, I hope is one of our goals. I mentioned that it's about respect and Paul's talked about respect older people. I've mentioned the other word, care. Care for those people. And as a church, we have to think through how do we care for people who don't have a family network of support? How do we care for perhaps a university student who comes into our city, comes into our church and their family is overseas and they don't have immediate access to their parents, and especially during COVID. One of the things that we were looking to do last year, just before, well, around COVID, thinking along these lines was to put on a Christmas lunch for those international workers who were staying at the local hostel. That, that was our mission. That was what we wanted to do. It didn't quite work out because there weren't as many here as we thought. But we wanted to show care for those people who were cut off from their family networks, following the principle here that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So now I mention respect, care, and here's the, here's the final word, honour. How do we, we honour those who are worthy and deserving of honour in our church? And Paul is actually going to give a category of people that are worthy. And I'm going to use this Greek word, presbyteros. You may recognise that from the Presbyterian church, which is where they get this word from. It's the Greek word, presbyteros. It means elders. 
council of elders, the team of elders, the group of elders in a church. Tonight we have Ali, an elder, who is here. We have Tony, who's an elder. Um, Stephen and Donna. Donna's um, recovering, and I, that's more than fair enough. And, and Stephen, who's with her at the moment, and that's fair enough as well. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and verse 17, that honors shouldn't, sorry, that elders shouldn't just be honored. Listen, do you hear what he's saying here? Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I was raised in a church where, as a young person, I was told you never refer to the pastor by his first name. It was always Pastor Joseph. Or something like that. Now, you've never heard me insist on that. I don't. But that was, the, that was the culture of the church that I grew up in because of verses like this. I, I, I'd heard people say, but we're all equal. And, and uh, someone I highly respected, Kevin Connor, who's now passed away, but he actually said, you should never do that. But I think the question still has to be asked, then how do we honour those That's all we have time for tonight. If you'd like to obtain a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please go to our website, findingtruthmatters.org, and select Dear Timothy, Part 7, from our online store. As we've heard tonight, some important instruction from the Apostle Paul on how to respect, care, and honour those in our community. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again so at the same time next we week for another Finding Truth Matters. People, especially